Cast. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Todd Cashton. Todd is professor of psychology at George Mason University and a leading authority on well-being, curiosity, courage, and resilience. He is a well-written author, having published over 200 scientific articles and having his work cited over 35,000 times. On top of that, he's written two books prior to the one we'll talk about today, uh, one titled Curious and the other The Upside of Your Dark Side. Those books have been translated into over 15 languages. He has also been featured in multiple media outlets and platforms such as Harvard Business Review, National Geographic, New York Times, Atlantic, and Fast Company. Now today we're going to talk about his latest book, The Art of Insubordination, and I am very much looking forward to the conversation that we're about to have about that. So join me in welcoming Dr. Todd Cashton to the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Todd, thanks for being with us today. So good to be here. Um, yeah, I cannot wait. I, I love uh, the discussion that I think we're getting ready to have, <laughs> and we'll see where it unfolds from here. But uh, before we get into talking about insubordination, um, I really want to start you off where I start off all of my guests on the show. When you hear the terms responsible leadership, what does that mean to you? From my perspective, there's two, there's two parts to being a responsible leader. One is the willingness and the openness to extract the knowledge and wisdom from everyone that is your subordinate that you're leading. And then two is you are intentionally bringing in dissenting, deviant, diverse voices into the room so you have a greater reservoir of knowledge and wisdom to draw from. Mm. I, I I like that. I like that a lot. That is... That may actually be one of my favorite answers to that question so far. And this is going to be like episode 178-ish or something like that. Um, I, I like that. And and so, again, my listeners heard in the pre-roll bio, but I talk about, you know, your book, The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. And you use the term subordinate in, in your response there, but... Why did you kind of gravitate towards this subordinate and insubordination theme? Yeah, I'm glad you poked at the language. Uh, intentionally designed to take a perceived negative, which is actually a positive in society. I mean, if you think of the past year, every use of the word insubordinate is someone that defied a rule, an order, and an authority figure, and somebody was pissed about it. And our entire lives have a series of social hierarchies. And, and some people don't like to, like to pretend that they're not there. I mean, if you and I were at dinner with three other friends, there would be someone who would be compelling, 
When they spoke and they told the story, other people would stop what they're doing, put their phones away, and they would be hanging at their every word. And you would have a, some social hierarchy of who grabs attention in the room? Who do people want to listen to? Who do want to, who, who people want to go to for their perspective, their opinions, their advice? And in organizations, we tend to have a non-flat hierarchy. And even if we pretend that there's a flat hierarchy, there's somebody who has more energy in the room where they can light up other people and they have um, somewhat of a duty that they feel to light up other people and have that responsibility. And so insubordination is the idea that despite the literal or the abstract hierarchies that exist, we are going to seek the greatest ideas we are going to seek the greatest solutions and we're going to try to make the best decision making irrespective of where it comes from, what the rules are, what the orders are, what the social norms are. And it's not a negative. And what I would want people to really understand is if you seek creativity, if you seek high performance, if you seek the best group such the group is greater than the sum of its parts, you have to allow principled insubordination in the room. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. I mean, that that is, I mean, essentially insubordination is creativity and innovation, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, and it's just bringing the social side, you know, people write self-help books. And in some ways, this is a social help book, which is when you think about teams and groups, whether it's family or friends, or it's an organization, I mean, no entrepreneur is a lone creator is you have to figure out what books are people not reading? What media are people not extracting? And if you read and think and abide by what everyone else is doing, I don't see how you get creativity except if it's luck. Yeah. Well, no, and, and kind of what you're talking about there is, is something I'm talking about a lot on here uh, and bring up is is the the idea of, of cognitive diversity, diversity of thought, finding those people that think different and and being able to bring those ideas together to come to the better solution, right? Yeah. And I'm glad you used the word cognitive diversity because you know, when we when we have this conversation, which is a great conversation that's happening in society, we have to allow the questions, which is why do I want diverse people in the room? Now, you could say you it's because you want representation. But be honest about that. If it's, if it's because you want creative performance, it's not the genetically inherited traits that have any predictive value in the creative and performance potential of a group. I mean, there's, there's, there is a synthesis of over 76 studies showing that surface level diversity does not increase the creativity of a group. It's only because People who have different backgrounds and experiences and they've read different books, have been exposed to different information and have had different schooling, have had different adversity and different positive experiences and have talked to different people. And they can they can leverage all of that and bring it into the group. Only then do you get the powers that actually predict the creative potential of a group. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. I love it. You know, we could talk about those traditional dimensions of diversity and, and, and I agree. Uh, that, that's one thing that I, I always like to point out. So that's why I love this book is because, you know, I always like when, when people who are smarter than I am kind of affirm some of my beliefs. So, uh, <laughs> I really love this book because yeah, you're a hundred percent right. If you get a, you can have a diverse group, but if they all have the same experiences, it really doesn't add a whole lot of value. And, and, and you got to be intentional about finding that type of cognitive diversity, right? Right. 
So, you know, there's, you know, and there are, there are reasons why you may want other forms of diversity. But I think what gets in the way of people achieving greatness, and that is, you know, a firefighter saving, saving as many people as animals as possible. It's a police officer keeping law and order. It is a politician that's creating legislation where kids are going to be safer families are going to be more united um you're, and you're going to have a greater educational experience that's available to you and you're going to pay it pay it forward such that each generation is better than the next generation if you want greatness you have to see society as it is not as you want it to be so we have to be honest about what actually leads to divergent thinking what leads to cohesion? What leads to conformity? You know, and we have to ask ourselves, what's the end game that we actually want? And I think one of the problems right now in society, which is why it motivated me to write this book and synthesize 60 years of research, is people are afraid. They're trembling in their boots of pointing out absurdities that they see right in front of their face that are being obstructions and barriers to exactly what we say what we say we want, but we don't really want, which is creativity, high performance, and amazing levels of opportunities to everybody. Yeah. So yeah, what you just said there reminds me, and I've shared this a few times on the podcast, so so I'll make it kind of quick here. But uh, um, are, are you familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's TED Talks? Almost all of his work, but definitely toss me anything that I don't know. Okay. Well, no. So in, in his, uh, Ted talk, uh, the, the one about spaghetti sauce, he shares this, uh, th- this kind of short story within the story about, uh, he talks what you just said about people not really knowing what they want. And he talks about, he says, if you, if you ask a hundred people what they look for in a coffee roast, they're going to say a rich, dark, hearty roast because that's what the commercials tell them is quality coffee. But if you give a hundred people, uh, a rich, dark, hearty roast, the first thing that most of them are going to do is put milk and sugar in it because what they really want is a milky, sugary, sweet coffee drink. And, and I think that's the key thing there. What you just said is, how do you get people really realizing what they really want versus kind of just going with societal norms and saying what they think the answer to what they want should be? It's a great question. So there's a number of ways of taking it. And I love that you tied it with the, the coffee example from Gladwell. One of the ways of being persuasive when the orthodoxy or the mainstream is going in what you believe is the wrong direction is as much as possible focus on what's objective and not subjective. So, so Earl, all of our conversation so far has been very objective. Like where does, where do the data actually go versus what would we like the data to actually be? And if you think about, you know, let me, let me give a concrete example of someone that when I think of uh, a principled rebel that kind of deviates from our conversation so far, Jane Goodall. So when Jane Goodall came on the scene, to actually study primates and chimpanzees and monkeys and, you know, and baboons. She did something as a sociologist that no one ever did before. And this is going to come back to the business world where she said, everyone said that human beings are the most elite animal species in terms of forming group binding, group bonding and creating a culture where aggression is under control. And she wondered if that was true. And the way that she actually explored whether other areas of the animal kingdom might be more cohesive, um, 
have greater structure and have lower levels of aggression was to go in and observe. And she didn't just actually trust what the literature said. She didn't trust like the authorities. And she always thought that how could you understand how chimpanzees actually operate unless you spend time with them? So she spent six months before she ever published a report of what is it like inside the culture of a chimpanzee tribe. And once she did, she exposed that they have compassion, even if you're not genetically related to each other. The first time anyone ever saw that with a chimpanzee. And that if you grew up as a child with another chimpanzee child and you had no genetic relation, even if you were separated for years, when you came back together, you were willing to throw yourself in the line of fire and 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 actually take the physical pain of a warring chimpanzee that wanted to fight your friend. You were willing to sacrifice your body because the social bond was so important that you were actually willing to put the preservation of life secondary to taking care of your friends and making sure that they're okay. And the beauty of the beauty of what she did was make the world recognize is that one, humans have a lot to learn from other species as we have a lot to learn from the cultures. But two, is that we actually have to observe over the course of time what a culture is as opposed to what people say the culture is. Not the mantras, not what you put on your website, but everyday experiences, who feels valued, what do they get incentivized to do, and then uh, what are the transgressions that allow you to be punished by your by your community, whether it's the business or the neighborhood that you're in. And you discover really quickly, do you really value creativity or do you value creativity that's guaranteed to work, which is very different than valuing creative ideas? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's really just that, that coming to grips, getting to know yourself and getting to know your, your, your people, your team, those sorts of things, right? Yeah. You want to get down to what are the nicknames people give to other people, right? Are they friendly? Are they probing? Are you able to have a sense of levity about people's strengths and weaknesses and kind of make fun of each other? That's a sign of a really healthy culture. When someone, someone shares an idea that only has only like a 25% probability, probability of working, do you build off of it? Do you ask questions? Do you talk about what, what potential it might bring? Do you give people a stress test where they're actually able to do a pilot, a pilot exploration of whether it actually has any merit or do you shut it down right off the bat? Because as soon as you say you like creativity, and as soon as afterwards you shut down an idea, that's when people learn very quickly in terms of, do you care about imagination? Do you care about innovation? Do you care about creativity or only things that actually work? Yeah. No, I, man, I love all of that because, you know, I think that's, that, that is so critical because, you know, you, you said it, the mantras, the, the, the nice little sayings on the wall. And when people go through, uh, and, and identify their core values, their principles, too many times, that's what that turns out to be is just some pretty wall art that people walk by and forget that it's even there after a month or two of it going up. And you've really got to make those things like be the fiber of, of what your organization is, right? Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things having worked in several organizations is we think that the best way to change the culture is to change behavior because it's visible and you can see it and people feel really good about, all right, I want people to be more civil to each other. 
And I want to see more people smiling. And I want to see people asking more questions. But the real secret ingredient for how to alter a culture is to shift the norms and to really figure out. And here's one kind of that we know that leads to the greatest creative performance in a business business culture is do you have – it's two different sets of values. Do you have a high level of epistemic values and do you have a high level of pro-social values? And let me kind of unpack that. So yes. the epistemic values is do you value autonomous thinking? And what that means is the leader has to speak last when an idea is brought out there. When you think about, okay, now that we know that Apple, like their share of the, of the smartphone market is actually slowing down, how do we actually gain a piece of that new marketplace? If the leader gives an answer first, because people want to curry the favor of the dominant alpha male or alpha female in the group, you're going to get compliance to your ideas which is basically a weak, a weak belief system that's easily shredded and it's easily kind of discarded. But it's going to seem as if everyone agrees with you. And a good culture has everybody share their ideas independently. And then you bring those ideas into the mix and nobody's personality or status in the group is tied to those ideas. So you're looking at the messages separate from the messengers, and then only then do you start evaluating which are the ones that we want to spend time focusing on, exploring, and actually diving in deeper. And this is a strategy where you're allowing critical thinking, independent thinking, and autonomous thinking. And you have to ask yourself, to what degree does your culture push for conformity and push for mainstream acceptance as opposed to a bunch of people that are actually looking for the best decisions, no matter where it comes from. Mm. No, I love that. I'm a big fan of that, that method for all those reasons there. And again, I love it when people who are way smarter than me affirm the, uh, some of the things that I've, I, I believe about how uh, problems should be solved because I've seen what you just said happen way too many times. The, the currying favor pieces, but, but we, we do that, man. It's, it's like what we've been trained to do. You know, we've got a problem. We go into the boardroom. Everybody gets around the thing and says, hey, here's the problem. And then the boss says, this is what I think we should do. What do you all think instead of reversing that process? And it's it's really that simple. Uh, of I love that you said the, the speak last piece because that really does open up. And, and even if people aren't actually speaking, right, they, they don't necessarily have to verbalize it, but you can come up with systems where, you know, let's say, hey, you can just shoot so-and-so an email or something like that. So people can can really think about what this problem means to them, not what they think it should mean so that they can be uh, promoted or get a bonus or something like that, right? Right. And this is where so we were just talking about the epistemic motives, right? That's and that's just basically the nerdy psychologist way of saying knowledge-based, knowledge-based norms. Right. But the other part is the pro-social motives and norms. Mm-hmm. And so you have to ask: to what degree do people get, as you're just describing, bonuses, promotions, and rewards, not for just individual actions, but for the collective? So if And because what you want is you want people to be contributing into the pot and not worrying about the fear of not getting credit, the fear that your ideas will be stolen, and the fear that you're going to be scrutinized and socially persecuted. And one way of 
working with those fears is not to get rid of those fears, but to change the incentive structure, make it pro-social. You reward if the group does well, everybody gets a piece of the action. And because this is how you get people that are called um, the glue members of the glue members of a group. And these people don't necessarily contribute the most intellectual idea or the most original idea. What they do is it's basically like you put your peanut butter in my chocolate. I put my chocolate in your peanut butter and the glue person brings the peanut butter people and the chocolate people together so that they're talking. You want to incentivize that. Get people who are not typically in the same social circle integrated because those two types of ideas and types of people will make the group better. In our current systems, government, business, athletic teams, we don't reward the glue members. They're just figuring out if I can get these characters together, if I can mix these two ideas together into a smoothie. I'm mixing my metaphors here. Mix these two ideas together into an intellectual smoothie. I think we're going to make better decisions and better products. And if you're not incentivizing those characters, you're not getting those characters. Yeah. No, I love it. I, I love it. And and again, listeners, I, I really hope that you're taking notes here because uh, you know, what 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 Todd is is saying here, this this is this is magic stuff, right? And and, and I wanna say, and maybe your experiences are a little bit different, but whenever I I'm talking about stuff like this, I usually get yeah, well, we're doing that. Like, like most people think that they're doing a pretty good job at this when they're really not, are they? Well, that's when you get so compliance versus conversion. And, you know, one of the big themes that I've been spending the last five years studying is what do you do when you don't have the power and status? You don't have the numbers behind you in terms of like a big coalition of characters and you might not have a lot of people in the room that are like you, right? So if you're, you know, if you're from Indiana or Nebraska and you're working on the West Coast in Silicon Valley or you're working on the East Coast on Wall Street, you're not like the other characters, just as if the only woman that's working on a team, just as if the only Asian American that's working on a team. And so if you don't have the culture that embraces the weirdos, the people that stand out, the people that just don't culturally match in terms of interests and preferences and books that they read and websites that they go in, they can get left out in their own little faction that happens there. So the things that we're talking about here is you have to ask yourself, what knowledge am I not extracting from the Midwesterner because we kind of have a West Coast approach or an East Coast approach and insert whatever demographics or whatever personality styles that you have. If you have a very extroverted group of people, sociable, loud, excitable, what are you doing with the quiet leaders? The people that they don't need to be the loudest person in the room, but there's no correlation between assertiveness and social effervescence and the quality of people's ideas. So we really have to start thinking about personality diversity. We have to be thinking about geographical diversity. We have to be thinking about all of these things that are barriers to us basically asking the question, hey, you over there in the corner sitting by yourself, I know you have opinions here and I want to hear them. And whatever you say, I'm going to find the golden nugget, no matter how you express yourself. 
I am not trying to, I'm not going to criticize you. I'm not going to negatively evaluate you. I just want to find the golden nugget in there and I can see your brain churning and our group needs you. Yeah. Well, and again, so as you were, were sharing that, I, I'm going, uh, you know, kind of back into the book a little bit here because you share a story of a guy who I think everybody should know his story, but I'm always sad to find out that almost nobody does. And that's the story of Ignaz Semmelweis. Uh, his story is so tragically, <laughs> tragically amazing because of some of these things that you just talked about, right? Those societal things, you know, he was in Budapest, Hungary. He was Jewish, uh, descent. There was still a lot of, you know, this was, uh, this was when some of the, the anti-Semitism in the area was starting to kind of ramp up. He was already seen a little bit of less than, and then he goes and does this radical thing uh, being a doctor in a hospital where he starts saying, Hey, we need to wash our hands. And he got ostracized for that. Didn't he? Yeah. It's, you know, it's, I'm glad you're bringing this up Earl, because I really think that most of the societal problems we have are from a lack of understanding of history. So we repeat ourselves yes. like, among us right now in every one of the groups where we're working is the next Galileo, the next Copernicus, um, you know, the next Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the next Jane Goodall, the next Malcolm X, you know, the next Bruce Lee. They're in there. And right now we treat their ideas as if they're heresy. So, you know, here's a guy in the 1800s before we knew about germ theory. You still believed in the four humors that basically the cause of all diseases were yellow phlegm, black phlegm, um, and there is no notion or understanding of under a microscope that there were actually these germs. And all of the maternity wards, all of the doctors, the obstetricians working in maternity wards, they worked double duty as in cemeteries and in, um, you know, working with cadavers. And so all of the little corpsicles that were on their hands from working with cadavers and doing autopsies, right afterwards, they were delivering babies. And it was this guy that was like, huh. Why is it that we're seeing more stillborns and more in, more infanticide and more maternal deaths in wards of people that are doing work with cadavers as well? You would think that they're the most qualified. They have the most experience. They have the most hours. Um, they're the, they have the most esteem. They're, they have the most prestigious jobs. And so he just started testing questions. And one of the things he discovered was, those people that washed their hands after working with cadavers, voila, were less likely to have maternal deaths and infant deaths in terms of during the, during the term of giving birth. And it was in the 1800s, it was such heresy that a physician would be told for all these years of education, the reason that you're performing badly is because your hands aren't clean. And you can imagine in the 1800s, a physician stomping their, stomping their feet and slamming their feet against a desk and saying, who the hell are you to say that like that I don't know whether my hands are actually healthy or unhealthy to my clients and my patients? And we have similar experiences right now where people are saying things that seem absurd only because they're outside of mainstream conventional thinking. Yeah. And, and, and so it was, it went on to even be called the Semmelweis effect for the longest time. And, and he had data, right? So, and uh, I don't want to necessarily spend a whole lot of time on this story, but I do think it's an important story. Like those wards, um, they were as high as, as I want to say for, for some 
terms as high as 40% mortality rates. And then when he really literally mandated almost that everybody under him wash their hands, theirs went to from 40% to, to below 4% and 0% in some months, if I remember right, right? It is, it's, I mean, it's as amazing as, as the statistics can get. It's at the point where you think that he must be fabricating the data. But now from 2022, we know it's so obvious. And, and the beauty of this story is you think to yourself, what is the thing, what is the belief system that I think is obvious, but I have no evidence to back it that is preventing me from seeing creative ideas that are among us right now? So you know, just just think about the social norms today that are absurd, um, and let's it, let's get away from the complicated examples. Just think of like the everyday ones. I mean, how many times have you seen someone choke or you choked, and somebody said, "Oh my God, are you okay?" Right. I mean, it's a natural social norm response. Or someone, if you sneeze, you say, "I'm sorry," or someone sneezes, you say, "God bless you," or if someone comes. Someone is, if the aftermath of a tennis match or a pickleball game, you shake someone's hand, even though it's sweaty and it's disgusting. And there's no reason why you should be doing this. Um, if you're in Spain, you, you basically air kiss someone on the cheeks when you meet a stranger. And in the U.S., that's treated as if it's a, it's a complete anathema for two, uh, two adult males to actually even remotely come near each other, lips to cheek that happen there. They're all these social norms. You've got one-year-old kids. They have onesie outfits that they sell. If you've got a girl, there, there are actual outfits that say, we'll never date, it says on their onesie. And if you have a boy, it says on their outfit a one, for a one-year-old that says, lady killer. We are building in social scripts from the age of one years of age, as opposed to actually taking a step back and saying, can I allow my kid to grow into whatever personality that they actually, and temperament that actually fits them and leads to their greatest strengths and gives them, gives them an opportunity to leverage their social relationships to work on their weaknesses. And they might not be a lady killer. And I'm going to let my daughter date because I think they should have healthy relationships. And I could care less if my son becomes a, you know, this amazing hunter for women they grow up as opposed to just abiding by these social scripts and confining what people can become. And I think, you know, part of principled rebellion is just removing the veneer of culture and society and asking, what's not working? What's dysfunctional? What do I think is working? But I have no evidence that it actually does. Again, I love it. And I love those examples because, you know, history is is full of those. And again, we keep coming back. I, I love talking about history on this show. Um you know, but but you, you talk about those like like pink and, and blue, right? There was a time, I want to say it was in the late 1800s, where that was reversed. Boys right. wore pink and girls wore blue. And uh, there's the famous picture. I think it's, I want to say it's Teddy Roosevelt as a kid, as a baby wearing a dress. Because that's what they did back then. Dresses were just what you put on babies. It didn't mean anything other than this is a baby. And... and how okay so uh we know how ignace's story ended it wasn't very well because he was not able to tactfully like prove his data and and get people to understand what was going on but how do we fight that how do we do this this art of insubordination where we say hey look 
yeah, this is the societal norm, but we're changing. Yeah, good. Let's get let's get to the concrete strategies. So let's let's imagine we're back in the situation with, um, you know, in terms of like trying to sell that hand washing is an effective strategy to reduce the death of mothers and children, infants. Um, they're too. So when you are the minority voice, you lack the numbers, you lack the status, you lack the power, or demographically, there's not a lot of people there that look like you. There are two questions the audience is going to ask, two tests the audience is going to give you. You have to pass, and only then will the audience consider and deeply contemplate whether your message has merit. These are the two tests. And this is this if if you don't follow this scientific advice, you have almost no chance as a minority to make to be influential unless serendipity works in your favor. The first test is this one. Are you an insider? Are you one of us? It's an important question. And whether we like like it that the groups do this, it doesn't matter. This is what groups do. So I'll give you an example. Andrew Yang from Minnesota. I think that's where he's from. Mm -hmm. He was running for mayor for New York not too long ago, and he lost. Now, one of the things that happened as he was – and I'm, I'm from New York City. He was going around New York City, and he was asked these questions by people who were wondering whether he'd be a good mayor. They asked him about the Yankees. They asked him about the Mets. They asked him, hey, where's your favorite place to go for pizza? And all of his answers showed, you're not a New Yorker. You don't know where to get pizza. You don't know who is the first baseman of the Yankees in the 90s, Don Mattingly. You have no idea who Dave Winfield was. You don't know about Reggie Jackson. You're not one of us. He failed the test that he was one of them. And because of that, no matter how great his ideas were, no one even cared because they're like, you couldn't understand us because you're on the outside looking in. So you have to provide some level of wherewithal, some evidence, some knowledge, some, you know, arcane kind of stories that show that you are a member of this group. You care about this group. You identify with this group. That's the first test. It's basically um, the in-group status test. Now, let's say you pass that one. And you show that, you know, you are like the type of person that kind of belongs here. Well, now you get, now is the test of, is your message and are you going to interfere with the health and the viability of this group? So it's basically a question of, are you a threat or are you a eccentric curiosity? You want to be an eccentric curiosity. One of the cool things about being the minority is that people are like, huh, What's this guy or gal up to? Why are they bringing this idea to us? Why are their ideas so strange? Why aren't they thinking like the rest of us? So you already have curiosity on your side. Your job now at test number two is to prove that you're there for the forces of good, not the forces of evil, and you're not there for selfish reasons. So when you could show, for example, that you are willing to put skin in the game, that you spent your own hard-earned money, thousands of dollars to do, you know, an initial test of whether your ideas work and you've talked to 300 people, you've done a field test, you know, you've actually invested in, you know, equipment to show that actually that uh, your new idea for a podcast in terms of how are you going to do it? It's going to be completely wireless, that it works because you bought the equipment, you hired some engineers, you put it all on your own dime. And now people are going to say, this is interesting. 
Like you are so committed to this cause of finding a new way of doing podcasts. You invested your money. You've invested your time. You're willing to be embarrassed if you're wrong. I kind of like this guy or gal. Like, and all of a sudden you've won the opportunity now to win the audience listening to what they say. They now, they now take their hands off their armrests. They fold their legs. They sit back in their chair and they're going to listen and they're really going to listen. So your message better be well crafted. I love, I love, I love, I love everything you just said. And, uh, you know, again, shameless plug for, for Guy Raz and how his, his, uh, how I built this uh, podcast because he's got so many stories on there that back up, uh, what, what, what Todd just said. Um, you know, if you ever listen to Richard Branson talk about starting Virgin Records and basically, I never knew this part of the story, but it was basically just, he had heard this great song that he thought that should get uh, made into a record and nobody would do it. So he's like, eh, I'll start making records. And, and that song was Tubular Bells. And, you know, look at all the success that that song has had because he he thought it was eccentric enough to go out and make it happen. And then uh, the gentleman who started Airbnb, you know, he got laughed out of rooms from investors because of this was a stupid idea, a stranger danger. People aren't going to do this. <laughs> now, can you imagine a world without Airbnb? I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's the kind of world changing stuff we're talking about here, right? Yeah. Earl, do you know the story about Chip Conley, how he started the Joe de V hotels? I, I do not. Share me. It's it's a pretty cool story where it, it fits with the examples that you're giving. Is so he wanted he just thought that hotels don't have personalities and they kind of don't. I mean, I mean, they, it's it's changed over the past twenty years and part of it's because of Chip. So Chip created in Japantown in near San Francisco a very kind of like avant garde kind of um, you know Japanese gardens and bonsai trees. And that was interesting. And then he developed the Phoenix in a different part of California and that had kind of like a hard rock and roll mentality. And then each one of his hotels had a different theme. And he, he was wanted to know, how do I make business? Um, who has the purse strings? Who has the power that holds the purse strings when all of these all of these bands that are coming through in vans and they're coming to California with these huge concerts and all their fans are coming. And he realized it's not the band. It's not the fans. It's, it's, it's the road manager because the road manager is kind of, I have to make their life as satisfying as possible. So what he would do is to, when he was starting off as an entrepreneur, he didn't comp the band, even if they were popular, not Aerosmith, you know, not Led Zeppelin, um, not Pink Floyd, you know, all the big names, you know, Judas Priest, um, Journey, none of the big names was he comping the bands. He was comping the road manager. He made sure they had a massage chair in his room or his, or her room. He made sure that they basically had like takeout food was going to be available and come to them. That was the best stuff in California. And once that started happening, that the road managers realized that this was the place, this was the rock and roll hotel, this was the place to go to, that the road manager was king or queen of this establishment. All of a sudden, word got out, and all of a sudden, all the fans started to come, and all the people that just loved music started to gravitate towards this hotel that had a rock and roll theme. And there's something about always trying to ask yourself, who is the exact target audience that's going to get the momentum going for the start of this product? And I think we often think about a demographic as big as 18 to 25 year olds, or we might say to ourselves, this is, this is, this is a great product for women 
or men, but we have to get more molecular to, well, what's their personality? Um, what do they do in their free time? How do they spend their money? Um, what stories are they going to be telling their friends when they go back home to the fire pit or the cocktail conversation that happens there? And you get down to that molecular detail. And then all of a sudden, you can really target the book that you're writing, the website you're creating, or the product that you're producing. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely 100% love that. And, and, uh, yeah, and it's understanding those power dynamics a little bit too, because, you know, while the road manager may not be the band, they're the one that tells the band and, and sets everything up where the band's going to go. And, 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 and understanding that concept is, is critical of, of where does the, uh, we talked about before, where does the power actually reside? Uh, I love that story. I love it a lot. Um, yeah, you, you did a nice job adding to it because, because the question is, okay, well, what, well, where's the insubordination? The insubordination is you were able to look at the power dynamics, not what the world was telling you, but what actually exists on the ground level is that nobody knows the name. I mean, I don't know, Earl, you might know. I don't, I, I, I love music. I was a DJ when I was in college. I had the, uh, the grunge fest at 10 o'clock PM on Sunday nights. Love it. 10, 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. But I couldn't tell you the name of any road manager, of any band, of any contact, compact disc, album, cassette, CD, streaming music of anybody. But it's like what you said. The insubordination is to say, I'm going to observe the actual power of dynamics because I'm interested in what works, not who, not whose autograph I want on the poster on my wall. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. Um, as, as, as we're coming up on time here, I would be very remiss if I didn't get to um, what I think is probably one of the most interesting titles uh, uh, in the book uh, is, is in uh, chapter 10, Raising Insubordinate Kids. Now, you know, I know the parents who are listening to this podcast right now are probably like, what in the, I don't want insubordinate kids, but, <laughs> but why should they? Yeah, I mean, everybody, every parent says that they want their kids to, to be happy. But most of us, I mean, I'm raising three daughters. Most of us actually do a lot of things that deviate from happiness. And what's going to deviate from our happiness is part of their job is to figure out how to be courageous, how to find their own voice, and how to amplify the voices of people that are not strong enough or tough enough to do it themselves and to be those heroes and defenders that are going to protect people who can't protect themselves. It's going to have virtue, right? Little Teddy Roosevelt's, little Chuck Yeager's, um, you know, little General Patton's. I mean, that's what we're trying to raise. And so we want to, we, you know, one strategy that's very important to raise kids that have fortitude and, and mental flexibility is to every moment that you as an adult, it isn't just for parents. It's all, like we're all educators of the next generation is when there are moments where you experience cowardice and moments where you experience bravery to deconstruct it for your kids. So for example, um, I gave a talk to 6,000 employees at Microsoft. Um, it was online. Everybody was in the chat room. It's a pretty intimidating thing of the idea of, of knowing that 6,000 people are writing simultaneously. And a lot of the stuff is pretty mean stuff that they write in the chat room as you're talking and trying to give a presentation on the science of curiosity. And I told my kids about part of being courageous is it's not the absence of fear. It's not, it's not 
managing your fear ahead of time. If you don't have fear in the moment, you can't claim that you are courageous or brave. And so it's when you experience that anxiety of like, oh man, I think I'm losing the audience. I can see that they're bored. They're saying that they're bored in the middle that I'm talking is that you're still doing an approach as opposed to an avoidance move. I'm still going to talk. I'm going to take a look at that. I'm going to notice it. I'm going to notice my heart rate just went up 10 beats per minute. My hands are a little bit sweaty. My legs are a little bit shaky. And at the same time, I know that I'm going to try to win them over with another story, another anecdote, another framework, another insight, because I care about the audience enough that I'm not going to allow a few characters that are disliking the message and actually sh- and showing me some static and friction that you stick with it. You stay in the arena. Teddy Roosevelt, again, you know, yeah. the man in the arena, the, the man who's willing to get dirt in their eyes and get their, that their arms scuffed up and be in there and actually fight the demons that they are worried about will, will, will destroy their reputation, will, will ensure that they have a loss. They stay in the arena and do battle. And even if they lose, they're going to deconstruct what went wrong and they'll come back in the arena again. And our job as adults is to really tell our kids of when we experienced that cowardice and we couldn't stay there because of the fear. And when we were able to stick it out and white knuckle it and watch the horror movie and do the roller coaster and tell the neighbor, listen, like you cannot have your dog, you know, doing their thing on my driveway and not cleaning it up. And it's a very, it sometimes it requires aggression, verbal aggression. And sometimes it's really hard to have that conversation, but you teach your kids that I was nervous the entire time, but I did it anyway, because it's, I'm creating a precedent that no one's going to allow their dog to do their thing on my driveway. And when we don't teach our kids that, and we pretend that we are fearless warriors going through the world, our kids don't learn that part of being a strong a strong person that actually is of a, a person of virtue is the willingness to take action despite the presence of fear. I, I love that. As a Marine, that was one of the things that they beat into our heads was like the, the, the second you're not scared in combat is, is the second that we need to send you for a psyche eval because something has went horribly wrong because you, you want to be scared, scared, scared is the thing that gives you, those healthy boundaries of not just going in guns blazing, running down the middle of the street, like a Hollywood movie, right? It, it keeps you in yeah. using strong tactics, cover concealment, using the things around you. And, but it, it, what you said is key is, is it's not the absence of fear. It's continuing to do the things you need to do while fear is there. And I love that. And, you know, to, to Todd's point, like if you listen to any of the kind of the popular guys that are out there right now, the the SEALs and whatnot that are and Rangers, uh, the Tim Kennedys, the Jocko Willinks, uh, you know, those folks, they'll tell you, yeah, when when the bullets are flying, I'm scared, you know, because what if what if that one hits me? What if that one hits me in the face? What if it hits me in the, in the head? But I got to do the things that I need to do. And, and that's the same thing. And I love this, uh, you know, same thing in business. Yeah, maybe, maybe you take a round to the chest, but do you have the people around you to be able to apply the proper first aid? I'm using metaphors here for folks uh, <laughs> to, to be able to bring you back. You, you still acted, you still advanced, you still made the innovation, you were still creative. But did you surround yourself with those people who had the courage along with you? To come up and say, hey, okay, we went off the rails here, but this is how we fix it and get back on track. 
And that is why I really loved uh, the, the art of insubordination, how to dissent and defy effectively. You know, listeners, we didn't directly reference a lot in the book during this discussion, but we covered a lot of the book in this discussion. Does that, that sound like a fair assessment? Yeah, I, li- I like to keep I like to keep the material secret so that people can enjoy it on the side, and we can always go anywhere and any place extemporaneously together, which we have. Yeah, no, I love it, and and folks. Get a copy of this book. I promise you. Uh, I know I say this with just about every uh, guest on here, but hey, I get high quality guests. It's true. You need these books on your bookshelves. Um, you know, Todd, we're, we're sitting here. We went. Uh, we're a little over forty five minutes at this point, and uh, it's just been a great conversation. Is there anything we didn't get a chance to cover though that you want to leave listeners with before we wrap up? Well, you know, there's. I didn't know you're a marine, and and I love it because. Um, of all the armed forces that I work with, no offense to the um, Army, Army, Navy, and Air Force, um, there's something magical about the Marines, and it's just there's a cultural, there's something cultural that's a little bit different uh, about it. So, um, with that said, I, I, I think I want to add one more thing to this, this idea of experiencing fear and be willing to act anyway, and that's there's two sets of people socially that are going to give you an alliance that's going to help you be successful in life and in business. And they're, they're not people, they're roles. One person is the secure base and one type of person is the safe haven. The secure base, and it's what I hope every listener has, is that people in your life that you can go to when you feel those uncomfortable negative emotions on the journey in business and life, where you feel you're embarrassed, you're ashamed, you're anxious, you're depressed, you're despondent. Things don't, you know, things don't work out sometimes. I mean, it's just the nature. I mean, especially over the past few years of, you know, the land of COVID. So these are people you can go to and they're going to give you the comfort, the ear that they listen to what your, your plight is and they'll share their own stories and they're, they're going to, they're going to accept you and validate you no matter what. You need those kind of characters. The second type of character that you need is the safe haven. And the safe haven is basically the person. This is like when you were graduating high school and you're going to go to college or go live in a, go live in another part of the country or another part of the world. And they said, listen, they didn't say it this way, but they were basically implicitly saying, Earl, I know you are not going to be the same person when you come back here. You were going on your odyssey. You're going to, you're going to the Marine Corps. They're going to train you. You're going to be a different person. You're going to have adversity. You're going to have triumphs. And you're not going to have the same personality when you come back. I want you to grow and expand into the person. I care about you. I validate you. And do your thing. And don't worry about us because we're going to be friends no matter what. Come back stronger, wiser, smarter, faster. And I just want people to really think about who has those qualities and is playing those roles in your life. And if an insufficient number of people are, sometimes you have to cut people out. And sometimes you got to find them and bring them in. Yes. No, I love it. A hundred percent. People are too afraid to be choosy about the, those people. And, and, you know, it's not a, it's not a terrible practice. It may sound callous, but you, you're, you're doing both people a favor when you do that. In all honesty, you're doing both people a favor. Um, no, I love it. Uh, so folks want to find out more about Dr. Todd Cashton. They want to find out uh, more about the art of insubordination. Uh, what is a good place for them to do that? Well, the book is is coming out in people's hands on Tuesday, um, February 15th. Um, it's on. It's everywhere. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, 
Powell's and hopefully it'll be, uh, you know, right there for the impulsive air traveler in uh, sitting there in airports pretty soon. And then you can find every my name, Todd Cashin. That's my handle on Twitter, LinkedIn, and it's also ToddCashin.com is my website. Love it. And I'll get those in the show notes for everybody. Um, again, Todd, I love it. It was a great conversation. I really appreciate the time you spent with me and my listeners. Thank you very much. Good luck with the book launch. This will be posting just a week or two after uh, the book has come out. Uh, so I highly encourage listeners to definitely go pick up a copy of the book. Uh, but again, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here and having this conversation with me and my listeners today. You are such a pragmatic, practical intelligence kind of guy. I just love being at the recipient of all your questions and thoughts. So this is going to be great. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X dot com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electricast production. Electricast. Electricast.